Hey all, welcome back to the Real Life Pharmacology Podcast. I'm your host, pharmacist Eric Christensen, and I thank you so much for listening today. As always, go check out reallifepharmacology.com. We've got a free 31-page PDF on the top 200 drugs. Uh, great study guide, great refresher, simply an email. We'll get you access to that, and then we've got, uh, we'll have got we get you updates when we've got new podcast episodes available as well. So again, uh, all that you can find at reallifepharmacology.com. All right, the drug of the day today is oxymorphone. Brand name of this medication is Opana, and it comes in two formulations uh, focusing on uh, oral administration here. So uh, it's an extended release formulation, and there is an immediate release formulation as well. Uh, this is an opioid medication utilized for moderate to severe pain in most situations. Uh, I would say it's definitely used less common compared to. Uh, probably oxycodone, hydromorphone, uh, hydrocodone. Those are, are used more often, but I do see uh, oxymorphone occasionally. So mechanistically, let's uh, touch on that briefly. So it binds opioid, uh, specifically the mu receptors, and its action uh, leads to an inhibition in uh, CNS pain pathways. So by kind of suppressing that or blunting um, those transmitting pain signals, uh, naturally we get a reduced pain sensation for our patient. So uh, essentially a, a, a numbness, uh, the injury, the damage, whatever the case may be, it's still there. It doesn't, opioids don't help with that, uh, but uh, patient, patients basically don't care or don't notice the pain uh, as much when they're uh, provided opioids for short-term pain relief. Uh, this is a Schedule II controlled substance, much like much like oxycodone, oxymor- uh, oxymorphone is Schedule II. Um, there are boxed warnings, just like other opioids, uh, addiction and misuse, increased risk for respiratory depression and overdose situations, uh, potential issues when combining with other CNS depressants like alcohol and benzodiazepines and so on and so forth. Uh, so there's there's plenty of risk associated with opioids and particularly uh, when they're misused or inappropriately used. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, dose conversions. So um, you'll get uh, if you go search online, certainly you can find opioid uh, dosing comparisons and things like that. And there's plenty of tables available online that are um, accurate and, and fine. Uh, with that said, I want to mention oxymorphone specifically um, in relation to morphine. So um, it's approximately three times more potent than morphine. Uh, approximate conversion is 10 milligrams of oxymorphone oral uh, is equivalent to 30 milligrams of morphine oral. Remember, morphine is kind of our, our gold standard there. Uh, so again, oxymorphone significantly more potent than morphine. Uh, as a reminder, I'll throw in oxycodone as well, which is uh, really commonly used opioids. Uh, oxycodone uh, is approximately 20 milligrams, equivalent to 30 milligrams of uh, morphine versus 
10 milligrams of oxymorphone. So oxymorphone is actually more potent. Uh, that is, it takes less of the drug uh, to get the same effects compared to uh, oxycodone. Uh, let's continue back with adverse drug reactions, um, constipation, nausea and vomiting, GI upset. Those are probably two of the most common things that I see. Uh, certainly sedation and, and drowsiness, that feeling can happen, especially as the dose increases. And as the dose increases, we also increase that risk for uh, excessive dosing and uh, respiratory depression. Uh, one adverse effect I did want to mention was itch. Uh, you will see a small subset of patients report itching after starting an opioid. Um, and that's theorized to be in relation to histamine release. Um, I don't believe there have really been any good studies that have looked at this specifically, um, but more... Um, just kind of analytical things uh, that that patients have that uh, providers have reported there. So, uh, morphine is considered to have the greatest amount of histamine release. Um, and if the theory falls true, then um, naturally morphine would be more likely to cause itch. Uh, oxymorphone tends to have lower histamine release. So, you know, this is a situation where it's like if I had somebody that you know, tried morphine, for example, and they had some itching with it. Um, again, depending upon the severity of the itching and that type of thing, um, you may consider using an alternative opioid or trying an alternative opioid uh, where maybe that histamine release is a, a little bit less. And oxymorphone uh, would fall into that category. Uh, fentanyl is another one that tends to have um, a little bit lower uh, histamine release there as well. But again, not much clinical literature out there on this topic uh, for those patients that do run into that adverse effect of itch. Uh, other adverse effects I wanted to mention, uh, hyperalgesia, so that's an increase in, in pain really despite increases uh, in the dose. Uh, rare reports of, of dropping blood pressure significantly. Uh, and then of course, respiratory depression, overdose risk. Uh, and then I also wanted to mention um, certainly uh, withdrawal. So we've we've got to pay attention to that um, increase in in sweating and stomach upset and all sorts of things uh, can happen with opioid withdrawal, which I think I've covered in the uh, naloxone um, podcast, if I recall correctly. Uh, so again, be sure to pay attention to that whenever you've got a patient that's had a significant dose change. Um, maybe they went from 40 milligrams and now they're taking 20 milligrams a day. Well, that's a pretty significant drop and uh, we might expect some opioid uh, withdrawal symptoms in that setting. Uh, longer term adverse effects, uh, there has been associations with hypogonadism uh, as well as hyperprolactinemia. Um, again, how sig clinically significant that is um, and how often it happens to patients. Uh, there isn't a ton of data out there on that, but they have definitely been uh, reported associated being uh, with chronic long-time users of opioids. I also wanted to mention um, potential for errors here. So um, oxycodone, hydromorphone, these are two medications that literally have the same um, 
few letters within their name, and uh, I have certainly seen confusion and heard of confusion associated with these names, uh, and it's important to recognize that these opioids all have different potencies. Um, so like I had mentioned before, I mean, oxycodone isn't as potent as oxymorphone. So uh, if we get one mixed up versus the other, um, we could definitely lead into a situation where it may lead to withdrawal uh, or uh, possibly overdose, depending upon uh, the situation and the uh, air that we, we make there. So I think it's really, really important to recognize um, that oxymorphone looks and sounds a lot like other opioids, uh, and we could definitely run into some issues if we um, uh, erroneously flip-flop those. Uh, let's talk a little uh, kinetics. Uh, half-life of the immediate release is about 7 to 9 hours. Uh, half-life of the extended release is 9 to 11 hours, so obviously we can um, generally get by with less frequent dosing with the extended release. But obviously, we don't like to use opioids long-term, uh, if we can at all help that as well. Oxymorphone does avoid SIP metabolism for the most part, so that is a nice thing. Um, it's mostly glucuronidation as far as metabolism goes. Um, not a ton of renal elimination, um, but I will say it has been shown that um, patients may be more susceptible to oxymorphone's effects as renal function declines. So that's something uh, to pay attention to and, and to put in your back pocket. Uh, and then folks from the uh, population base that I work with the most, elderly patients, um, they are definitely more susceptible to some of the adverse effects as well. So um, paying attention to those clinical factors um, may lead you to start a patient with a little more conservative dose or be a little bit more conservative uh, as we escalate doses there. All right, let's take a quick break from our sponsor and we'll wrap up with drug interactions. If you're in the market for any pharmacist board certification study material, go check out meded101.com slash store, S-T-O-R-E. We've got a growing list of resources there, help thousands of folks pass their board exams. So uh, go support the uh, sponsor, meded101.com slash store, and help support this podcast. Uh, also, if uh, you're looking for books, audible books, other resources, uh, we've got a fun crossword puzzle book on pharmacology. A uh, great way to kind of study, uh, review, or just refresh uh, some of the knowledge that maybe you've forgotten since school, uh, for example, there. So uh, all those links to all those books and resources you can find at meded101.com slash store. All right, wrapping up with drug interactions. So uh, I alluded to a couple of interactions, uh, particularly with uh, boxed warnings, um, so benzodiazepines, uh, gabapentinoid agents like gabapentin and pregabalin, um, alcohol, uh, and other CNS depressants can certainly increase that risk for respiratory depression uh, from an overdose type situation. So uh, really pay attention to that. The more sedating drugs we have, uh, probably the more risk your patient is going to be um, at, uh, for problems regarding uh, oxymorphone. Uh, also wanted to mention it, it will exacerbate gastroparesis or at least has that potential. So uh, if you remember, opioid, opioid agonist action tends to slow down the gut. So 
um, patients on prokinetic agents. Uh, opioids will directly oppose uh, the, pot- the potential benefit from those medications. Uh, kind of in the same vein, uh, constipation, um, oxymorphone can increase constipation. And when we add on other medications, um, let's say med- meds that have anticholinergic activity, um, that can certainly exacerbate that constipation uh, even further. Uh, serotonin syndrome risk, it is listed with oxymorphone. Um, in general, it's, it's not a huge red flag like on my radar, um, but there has been some case reports and some things reported with that. So um, pay attention, and, and I, I tend to focus a little bit more so on patients who already have a larger serotonergic burden. So somebody on maybe a higher dose SSRI, for example, um, maybe these patients are a little bit more at risk for, for serotonin syndrome. And then last but not least, I did want to mention a little bit of a food interaction here. So um, a high-fat meal can actually increase the peak uh, concentration uh, by almost nearly 50%. Uh, So that can definitely be significant, and uh, particularly, um, you know, in patients maybe with poor renal function or older patients or maybe on other uh, CNS depressant medications, um, that increase in concentration could lead to an increased risk for adverse effects. So uh, with that, um, it is generally recommended to give oxymorphone one hour before or two hours after eating uh, to avoid that little additional um, spike in peak concentration. All right, well, I think that's going to wrap up the podcast for today. Hopefully you picked up a few practice pearls. Uh, definitely leave us a rating review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. That's greatly appreciated. Um, go check out uh, books, resources, meded101.com slash store. Your purchases there go directly to support this podcast. Uh, if you've got questions, comments for me, uh, mededucation101 at gmail.com. And I hope you have a great rest of your day.